Okay, good morning. Um, we will look at several passages as we take a look at this next doctrine that we've been going over. We've been looking at the Reformed faith, and the series is called A Faith to Die For, and one of the purposes is to go through the Reformed faith and some of the basics of the Reformed faith and talk about why it's so important, and not just a doctrine to get into arguments or discussions about, but something that really is life-changing or that affects us. I was talking to a Christian uh, some t- a little while ago, not too long ago, and I asked him the question, what did Jesus say is necessary if someone is going to come to him for salvation? According to uh, John chapter 6 and verse 44, I got a kind of an interesting response. The person would not answer. Um, they didn't want to answer the question. If you read the verse, it says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And they didn't want to answer. She finally said, I don't believe that. Now, this is a person who is a Christian, um, but a person who has a different theological persuasion, and because their, their theology is different than what a verse apparently said, uh, she, she couldn't say, um, she could not answer the question, even though it was clearly something in the Bible. Now, I think uh, that just illustrates the fact that there are a lot of Christians, I think, that because of certain theological presuppositions that they have or because they were raised a particular way they don't want to believe certain things and when they actually are confronted by scripture that teaches something a little bit differently they don't know what to say now this idea and if you look at the verse again Jesus said no one can come to me unless the father draws him this whole idea of drawing is what we want to look at this morning as we're talking about what is sometimes called irresistible grace. So that's the doctrine we'll be taking a look at the morning, this morning, the fourth Reformed doctrine, which is <coughs> the doctrine of irresistible grace. Now, I'll just define this, um, first of all, by reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a little bit of a longer definition. I'll read that, and then I'll give you a kind of an abbreviated definition as well. It's under... Uh, the heading in chapter 10 on effectual calling. It says, All those whom God has predestined to life, and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death, in which they are by nature to grace and salvation, by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away the heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills by his almighty power, determining to them that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace." Now, that's a mouthful. We could talk about that for a long time. You could have a discussion just on that, on that one paragraph. But I'll, yes, that was the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10. Um, I'll give you kind of a summary definition of what I think would be um, at least a shorter definition. It might be easier to get in our minds. I would say it's this. Those who are elect have their hearts changed in such a way that God guarantees that they'll respond in faith to the gospel. So that those who are elect are worked on, their hearts are worked on in such a way that God guarantees that they will respond in faith, so that they will come to Christ. Now, um, if you go to what we've been talking about so far, you'll notice that there's been a kind of an order 
to salvation, sometimes called the order, order salutis. Um, but this is really the order of salvation. You'll see a number of things. First of all, we saw that God elects us. Before, the, before we were ever created, God chose, before time, to save certain people. And he determined that's what he was going to do. That was election. Then we saw that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to particularly pay for the sins of those people, to die for those people whom he had chosen. Now as we look at, at this doctrine, we see that God is working individually in each of those hearts, those people who were chosen, to bring them to faith in Christ because they wouldn't come to faith in Christ otherwise. Now, as the confession said, this is sometimes referred to as effectual calling. Now, that's different than what we would call the general call to the gospel. If you know uh, somewhat of the distinction, the general call is that call that goes out to everyone when there's preaching or when there's witnessing, when people are called to put their faith in Christ. They're given the gospel and they're invited to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, that's what Jesus did in Matthew 4.17. It says he began to preach, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent. That was a general call, or what we would call the gospel call. It's the same thing that Paul does in Acts 17. When he is preaching to the Athenians, he said to them, God calls all men everywhere to repent. That's sort of that general calling when God says to all people, Um, you need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. But there's a bit of a difference here. The effectual call, then, is that working of the Spirit inside those who are elect so that they will respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And, in fact, he's actually drawing them. He's giving them a new heart. He's giving us a new will so that we willingly respond to the gospel. And that's what effectual call is. And that's why... Uh, this doctrine is called irresistible grace because it's that grace of God which he bestows on particular individuals that guarantees they're going to come to Jesus Christ. It's a grace, and when God determines he's going to save somebody and draw them to himself, he is. So it's not just a general conviction that somebody feels bad about their sins or maybe they feel like they need to do something a little bit differently. God is actually drawing people to Jesus Christ so that they will put their faith in Christ. And that's what we mean by irresistible grace. This is really what Paul is speaking of, I think, in 2 Timothy uh, 2.25, when he says about particular people and in in relating to different people, especially in a witnessing context or an example context, he's saying God may grant them repentance. In other words, it's not just calling people in general to repentance. It is a gift that God gives them so that someone is actually given the gift of repentance. They will turn to God because of the work that God is doing in them. And that's what, is, what God means in Ezekiel eleven nineteen when he says, I will give them a new heart. I will put my spirit within them. I will replace their heart of stone with a heart of flesh. In other words, God is doing something in the will so that people will respond when they hear the gospel call. And that is effectual calling, or what we might call irresistible grace. Now, I want to take a look at uh, some other scriptural support. We've looked at some already, um, some examples in scripture. Let's look at a a few others. Uh, First of all, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, that was... Chip was preaching on Ephesians chapter 2 last week and again in the message this morning, and he talked about some of that. But if you go to the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
So we were living in rebellion against God. We were following our passions. We were doing what we willed to do, following our our will to live the way that we wanted to in all of those passions, and it may be different for everybody, but it's essentially rebellion against God. We talked about that. That was total depravity. But then he says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. In other words, this grace made us alive. It made us willing um, to turn to Jesus Christ. It drew us to Jesus Christ. And so that's what we mean by irresistible grace. And that was one of the verses that we could look at. You could go to John chapter 6 and verse 37, I think is another good verse that talks about that. Um, John says, or Jesus says actually in John 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What is he saying there? Those who have been given to me, and Jesus frequently uses that term in the Gospel of John to refer to those people who are the elect, says those who have been given to me will come. In other words, it's guaranteed. They will turn um, to me. They will follow me. And along that same line, if you go to John chapter 10 and verse 16, um, you, you have a, a similar statement. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, in this case, I believe Jesus is referring to Gentiles as well as Jews, um, but still speaking of specific people um, who are his sheep, uh, those people who belong to him or have been given to him before time. He says, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. So those who have been given to me, those who are already my sheep, haven't responded yet, but they will listen to my voice, they will hear, they will come to me, they will follow me. And so again, Jesus is is teaching that same idea. There are those who have been given to him, and they will, God will ensure through the Holy Spirit that those people are changed in such a way that they will respond um, to Jesus Christ. This is very similar to the idea of, and taking place at the same time as resurrection or being born again. And a lot of people, at least in the churches that I grew up in, uh, would look at this and say, well, you make a decision for Jesus and then you're born again. You're regenerated as a result of that. And that's not what Paul and the rest of Scripture is saying. It's saying you were regenerated, God made you new, and that's why you believed. That's why you turned to Jesus Christ. So it's not based on your decision, it was based on the will of God. And so um, we see this throughout Scripture. I think you see it in Romans 8 and verse 30 as well. Uh, When you look at what Paul is is talking about there, especially he's been talking about the fact that those who are called according to his purpose, again, referring to those people who are elect, those who have been drawn to Christ, he says this in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the idea there is that God predestines and then he calls. That is, all that he predestines, he calls, and all that he calls, he justifies, and all that he justifies will one day be glorified as well. So you see that that progression there as well. So uh, it really goes back to the idea again, and you see a lot of this in John. You notice I quote John a lot because you see these doctrines throughout the Gospel of John. But if you go back to the very beginning of John, chapter 1 and verse 13, and remember what Jesus said when he referred to people who were born again, who were made the children of God by faith. He then says about them in one thirteen, they were born not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. In other words, your salvation and your turning to God 
was based on the will of God. God willed that that would take place, and that's why we turn to God. That's why we repent of our sins and why we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So if you've responded in faith to the gospel, that was God's work in you. It was something that God did in you. He um, irresistibly called you to himself. Now, this is, I think, a really important doctrine, or is a crucial doctrine. When we start talking about all the different kinds of, uh, all of the doctrines that we've looked at so far, I say this every week, but again, I think this is, is very, very important. This, because this doctrine emphasizes a number of different things. I'll just give you three reasons why I believe this doctrine is important for us, even on a day-to-day basis. Um, first of all, I would say the doctrine of irresistible grace demonstrates that God is absolutely sovereign and that man is not. So this doctrine demonstrates the fact that God is absolutely sovereign, that man is not. Uh, One of the major objections that I hear to this doctrine when I've discussed it with others or talked with others is this. Uh, Many people, even Christian people, are convinced that that we have this almost um, sovereign free will. And that every single person has this free will, and God has almost has an obligation to not go against it. I don't know if you've talked to people like that before, but they would say, we have this free will, God can't do anything against our will. So he's almost working with certain restrictions. Now, I'll give you an example of this. I almost hesitate to give this because um, I, this is a movie, because it's not a movie I would recommend. Uh, there was a movie that came out a number of years ago called Bruce Almighty, I haven't seen it. Um, I don't recommend it. I think a lot of that is blasphemous. But I was sitting with an unsaved friend and talking to him one time at a coffee shop, and he had seen this movie, and he was really enamored by it. So he explained the whole premise to me, you know, that this guy is given the powers of God for some certain period of time. But he's given a certain restriction, just to show how, kind of show how difficult God's job is. He can do all of these things, and he has all these powers, but he can't interfere with anybody's free will. Now, uh, that, I think, is, is generally speaking, and I looked this up in a review just to see if that was the case, and the, the reviewer said exactly the same thing. I think that uh, is a picture that a lot of people have of God, that we have this free will, and God can't interfere with that at all. He can't, he's obligated to not do anything about that. Uh, he has to, he can, he can, he can kind of... Uh, prod, or he can sort of push a little bit, Uh, he can convict, but he really can't interfere with our free will. And unfortunately, although a lot of people have that idea, there are a number of problems with that. First of all, and we saw this at the very beginning, go back to total depravity. The whole idea of total depravity is that nobody seeks after God. We saw that in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11. No one is righteous and nobody seeks after God. So, if God didn't, quote, interfere with our free will, where would we all end up? But we'll all end up being judged by God because if God doesn't do something to change our wills, um, and we do believe that he changes our will so that we freely accept Jesus Christ, but if God didn't do something in our will, then none of us would be saved. It would be impossible for us to be saved. The second problem with that um, is that it gives man more free will than God. The interesting thing to me is that people object to that and kept constantly bring that up. Well, we, we've got free will, and of course God doesn't go against that kind of thing. Well, it ends up making man sovereign. In other words, we're free to do anything. God has certain restrictions. 
So we're free to choose things, but God is not free to choose what he sovereignly wants to do. Um, and that's really been man's trouble from the very beginning. If you go back to, to Adam and Eve in the garden, what was the temptation that Satan gave to them? You will be like God. And ever since then, we have wanted to be like God. We've wanted to be in control. We want to make it about us, about what we're doing. And even when it comes to religion or salvation, it's going to be something we do. We're in control. Instead of, of making God sovereign and saying God is the one that ultimately controls everything, God is the one who is sovereign, and we end up uh, making ourselves sovereign. Uh, but that's impossible. God has the free will to choose to do whatever he chooses to do. And it's not a matter of him not interfering with our free will, um, but of man being able to, to bow to God and say, uh, it is your will, and everything that's done is because of your will, not because of what we will. Now that really leads to uh, the second thing, a very similar thing, but I would say a little bit different. The doctrine of, of irresistible grace encourages us because it shows us that God's purposes will always be accomplished in this world. I think it's encouraging because it shows that God's purpose is going to be accomplished. What God is decided to do is going to take place. Now, living in this world can be kind of discouraging. Is that true? Now, I look at things around me. I get discouraged about things sometimes. I think, well, the world is just is going the wrong direction. Why can't people see? You look at things like abortion, and then even in this country, uh, euthanasia coming in, and that sort of thing. You look at... Uh, persecution of believers, moral rebellion, a complete disregard for God's plan for marriage, um, and all of that. And you look at those things and you think that doesn't seem to be going the direction that, that doesn't seem to be going the right direction. But ultimately, God's purpose will be accomplished. Ultimately, God will see to it that what he wants to come to pass will, and he ensures that. He doesn't just hope that it will. He doesn't just do what he can to, to send things a certain direction. There is a, uh, a theology that's been more prevalent here in the last um, few years called open theism. And even among people who call themselves evangelicals. But basically this theology is, it says that, that God uh, says things, he speaks and acts in certain ways, and then he waits for us to respond before he's going to, to do anything. And in fact, he doesn't know what we're going to do. Um, but he's going to wait till we respond, and, <clears throat> and then after he sees what we do, then he'll respond. Well, uh, of course, biblically, now that's way off, because the Bible tells us that not only does God know, God also determines things. And so it's not a matter of God just sitting back and waiting, and then he responds to us. God is the one who's taking the initiative. God is the one who's working. Uh, God is the one who's working in this world. And so he doesn't just sit back and wait for things to happen and respond. God is the one who will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And that's why he can, he can prophesy things. And it, no matter what anybody does, it doesn't thwart it. Herod can't thwart uh, God's sending of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ in this world. He can't thwart that by killing him because whatever Herod or anybody else tries to do um, to stop that's not going to happen. And God's going to see to it that what he says is going to happen is going to. What he wants to get done is going to happen. Um, so it's, it's something that's encouraging. At least it's encouraging to me. And then finally, I think, and this goes along with this as well, the doctrine of irresistible grace is, is really what our prayers for other people is based on. All of our prayer for other people is based on the doctrine of irresistible grace. When we're praying for an individual salvation or if we're praying for revival, what are we counting on? What are we really praying for? 
Yeah, we're praying for God's irresistible grace to be working in that person so that they will come to Jesus Christ. That's what we pray for. I think uh, in his book, Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God, which has been very helpful to me, this is written by J.A. Packer, uh, he talks about the fact that our prayers, even the fact that we can pray for somebody else, is based on um, the idea that God is the one who saves them and can save them. He says this, There's a second way in which you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversion of others. In what terms now do you intercede for them? Do you limit yourself to asking that God will bring them to a point where they can save themselves independently of Him? I do not think you do. I think that what you do is to pray in categorical terms that God will quite simply and decisively save them, that he will open the eyes of their understanding, soften their hard hearts, renew their natures, and move their wills to receive the Savior. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. You would not dream of making it a point in your prayers that you're not actually asking God to bring them to faith because you recognize that that's something he cannot do. Nothing of the sort. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. You entreat him to do that very thing, and your confidence in asking rests upon the certainty that he is able to do what you ask. And so indeed he is. This conviction, when it animates your intercession, is God's own truth written on your heart by the Holy Spirit. In prayer, then, and Christian, the Christian is at his sanest and wisest when he prays, you know that it is God who saves men. You know that what makes men turn to, to God is God's own gracious work of drawing them to himself. And the content of your prayers is determined by this knowledge. So you see what he's saying there. Um, that is the basis of our prayers. When you pray for people... You're praying that God will turn them. We're not just praying that God might do something, that something might happen. It was interesting. I was talking to a person, uh, this was uh, last year, uh, talking to a person about somebody we both knew who wasn't a Christian. And this person said to me, reflecting kind of the idea, this is a Christian person, they said this to me, kind of reflecting what we talked about before, um, well, you know, God won't go against anyone's free will, so we're just going to have to pray for him. And I was thinking, what are you praying for? What exactly are you praying for? Are we just praying that, God, uh, I sure hope this person will be saved, and God is responding back, I sure hope they will too. What what are you praying for? You can't pray for people's salvation. You can't pray for God's work in the world or in the church or pray for revival if you aren't praying that God would individually change and save people. They would actually turn their hearts. And so that's what all of our prayers are based on. And prayer itself is pointless unless God has the power to do that, unless he actually does that, unless he's actually the one who brings people to saving faith. Now, I saw this in the life of one person um, when we were in, in Michigan that was, I think it was a really good example of this. There was a, a, a young guy that was in our church. He was in high school. And this guy was was just as rebellious as he could be. Um, I, you know, he, he did what he wanted. He was disrespectful to his parents. Uh, when we met him, when he got out of high school, he did a lot of drinking and going out and getting drunk and, and just partying, living whatever life he wanted to, complete disregard for God and other people. And uh, one day I got a call from him, and he said that he wanted to, to meet me um, and go out for a run. Well, that sounds good. We'll go out for a run. That's a little bit of a strange call. Um, But he said he wanted to go out for a run, so I said, that's fine. We'll do that on Tuesday. Um, He came to church on Sunday, and he wanted to talk to me after the Sunday school class. So he came up to me, 
and uh, after everybody else had left, um, he just broke down into tears and he began to cry and to weep about all the way that he'd been living and everything that he'd been doing and the whole sinful way that, that he had lived. And he was a completely changed person. And I met with him for a course of several weeks after that. We would meet every week, and for probably three weeks, every time we would talk, he would break into tears again, um, weeping about the way he had been living, but grace, uh, very grateful to God for the fact that he had changed him. That was a person in whom God's irresistible grace had worked. Um, and that's why we can have confidence in prayer, because we know that God can do that, and because we know that he does do that. And so this doctrine, I think, is extremely important for that. And it gives us not only encouragement um, that God's will will be done in this world, but also gives us encouragement in our prayers. And I think uh, that makes this uh, not only an important but a wonderful doctrine for us. Aren't you glad that God did that in your life? Aren't you glad that God irresistibly drew? I, I am. I'm so glad that God irresistibly drew me. And even though I was stubborn in my own heart, Um, God drew me to himself, and that's the reason that we worship him, one of the reasons we worship him even today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for all the things you've done for us. We could could thank you for answered prayers that you've given to us this past week. We could thank you for protection. We could thank you for all kinds of things, but we thank you especially that not only that you chose us and that you died specifically for us, but you drew us to yourself. It's grace because it's nothing that we deserve. I mean, there's, there's no reason we could say for why you would draw us, except that you chose to love us. And so we're thankful for that. I pray we would uh, worship you with all of our hearts this day because of that. In Jesus' name, amen.